Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Well, it's happened. December is upon us, and, like a shadowy horror pursuing you down a darkened alleyway, the holiday season has nearly crept up on us once again. While some people love the sappy sweetness, giving spirit and good tidings of the season, I've always been more fascinated by the darker side of the holiday. And no, I don't just mean excessive crowds of people and rampant commercialism. Other than, of course, Halloween, there is no time of year that brings out the creepy and ghoulish tales quite like the holiday season. And there's good reason for that. Long before the yearly barrage of cheesy Christmas-themed horror, hundreds of years even before Scrooge and his three spirits, tales of deadly creatures and ghostly visitations were a mainstay of the season. Back then it had little to do with what we know as Christmas, though. As the night grows longer and colder, it's only natural that people would gather a little closer around the fire. The winter solstice was a time of year when it was thought that the barrier between the dead and the living was particularly thin. And with the fading edge of the year looming near in the distance, Themes of death and rebirth have often not been far from mind. Some of our most regular classic tale-tellers have penned popular festive ghost stories, including E.F. Benson, Algernon Blackwood, and M.R. James. Whether you love holiday-themed horror or hate it, there's plenty for you to discover if you're in the mood. Speaking of which, I might just have a few finds to share with you to wet your whistle for the season. Growing up, one of the things I always looked forward to at this time of year was that little paneled cardboard Christmas scene, crisscrossed with tiny numbered doors. 
Each morning I'd race downstairs, tear open a new door, and devour the treat inside. Yes, the advent calendar. One of the few times of year I could get away with having chocolate at breakfast. While the treats you'll find inside their doors might be more spooky than sweet, the folks over at CreepyChristmasFest.com have put together their own Christmas Advent calendar. After a ten-year hiatus, they're releasing a short film a day until December 25th. Conceived by artist Beck Underwood, the calendar features 25 directors, each with their own unique style. Each director was given a single, season-specific word on which to base their work. And based on the entries I've seen so far, it's going to be a wild few weeks. Check it out at creepychristmasfest.com. If short films aren't really your thing, and you'd like to dive headfirst into some meteor cinema, the folks over at dreadcentral.com have a holiday challenge for you. Their December 31-day horror challenge, The End is Nigh, dares you to watch an apocalyptic film a day for the entire month of December. The titles range from classics to contemporary, campy to serious, but each centers on the theme of the end of the world, to commemorate the end of the year. If you're up for the challenge, best jump on it soon before you get too far behind. Link is in the show notes. Now, before we dig into our fiction for the evening, I'd like to give you a bit of a preview of the coming weeks. We've got a ways to travel before we arrive back at my home in the Canadian prairies, but I'd like to give you some time to relax and enjoy the season before we have to pack up and hit the road. And when we do, I'd like to take the scenic route as we travel north. I've never had the occasion to explore as much of the U.S. as I'd like, and I'd very much like to bring you along for the ride as we explore some of the darker landmarks along the way, the myths, legends, and horrors that have helped define the very fabric of North America. Something to look forward to in the new year, but for now, let's get you some fiction. Robert Barr was a Scottish-Canadian short story writer and novelist, born in Glasgow, Scotland. Barr emigrated with his parents to Upper Canada at age four and was educated in Toronto at Toronto Normal School. Barr became a teacher and eventually headmaster of the Central School of Windsor, Ontario. While he had that job, he began to contribute short stories, often based on personal experiences, to the Detroit Free Press. In 1876, Barr quit his teaching position to become a staff member of that publication, in which his contributions were published with the pseudonym Luke Sharp. This nom de plume was derived from the time he attended school in Toronto. At that time, he would pass on his daily commute a shop sign marked Luke Sharp Undertaker, a combination of words Barr considered amusing in their incongruity. Barr was promoted by the Detroit Free Press, eventually becoming his news editor. In 1881, Barr decided to vamoose the ranch, as he said, and relocated to London to establish the weekly English edition of the Detroit Free Press. In 1892, he founded the magazine The Idler, choosing Jerome K. Jerome as his collaborator, wanting, as Jerome said, a popular name 
He retired from its co-editorship in 1895. In London of the 1890s, Barr became a more prolific author, publishing a book a year, and was familiar with many of the best-selling authors of his day, including Bret Hart and Stephen Crane. Most of his literary output was of the crime genre, then quite in vogue. When Sherlock Holmes stories were becoming well-known, Barr wrote and published in The Idler the first Holmes parody, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, a spoof that was continued a decade later in another Barr story, The Adventure of the Second Swag. Despite those jibes at the growing Holmes phenomenon, Barr remained on very good terms with its creator, Arthur Conan Doyle. In Memories and Adventures, a serial memoir published 1923-24, Doyle described him as a volcanic Anglo, or rather Scot-American, with a violent manner, a wealth of strong adjectives, and one of the kindest natures underneath it all. Children of the Night, Robert Barr's Classic, The Man Who Was Not on the Passenger List. The well-sworn lie franked to the world with all the circumstance of proof cringes abashed and sneaks along the wall at the first sight of truth. The Gibrontus of the Hot Cross Bun Line was at one time the best ship of that justly celebrated fleet. All steamships have, of course, their turn at the head of the fleet until a better boat is built, but the Gibrontus is even now a reasonably fast and popular boat. An accident happened on board the Gibrontus some years ago, which was of small importance to the general public, but of some moment to Richard Keeling, for it killed him. The poor man got only a line or two in the papers when the steamer arrived at New York, and then they spelled his name wrong. But it happened something like this. Keeling was wandering around very late at night when he should have been in his bunk, and he stepped on a dark place that he thought was solid. As it happened, there was nothing between him and the bottom of the hold but space. They buried Keeling at sea, and the officers knew absolutely nothing about the matter when inquisitive passengers hearing rumors questioned them. This state of things very often exists both on sea and land as far as officials are concerned. Mrs. Keeling, who had been left in England while her husband went to America to make his fortune and tumbled down a hole instead, felt aggrieved at the company. The company said that Keeling had no business to be nosing around dark places on the deck at that time of night, and doubtless their contention was just. Mrs. Keeling, on the other hand, held that a steamer had no right to have such man-traps open at any time, night or day, without having them properly guarded, and in that she was also probably correct. The company was very sorry, of course, that the thing had occurred, but they refused to pay for Keeling unless compelled to do so by the law of the land, and their matter stood. 
No one can tell what the law of the land will do when it is put in motion, although many people thought that if Mrs. Keeling had brought a suit against the Hot Cross Bun Company, she would have won it. But Mrs. Keeling was a poor woman, and you have to put a penny in the slot when you want the figures of justice to work. So the unfortunate creature signed something which the lawyer of the company had written out and accepted the few pounds which Keeling had paid for room 18 on the Gibrontus. It would seem that this ought to have settled the matter, for the lawyer told Mrs. Keeling he thought the company acted very generously in refunding the passage money, but it didn't settle the matter. Within a year from that time, the company voluntarily paid Mrs. Keeling £2,100 for her husband. Now, that the occurrence is called to your mind, you will perhaps remember the editorial one of the leading London dailies had on this extraordinary circumstance, in which it was very ably shown that the old saying about corporations having no souls to be condemned or bodies to be kicked did not apply in these days of commercial honor and integrity. It was a very touching editorial, and it caused tears to be shed on the stock exchange, the members having had no idea before reading it that they were so noble and generous. How, then, was it that the Hot Cross Bun Company did this commendable act when the lawyer took such pains to clear them of all legal liability? The purser of the Gibrontus, who was now old and superannuated, could probably tell you, if he liked. When the negotiations with Mrs. Keeling had been brought to a satisfactory conclusion by the lawyer of the company, and when that gentleman was rubbing his hands over his easy victory, the good ship Gibrontus was steaming out of the Mercy on her way to New York. The stewards in the Grand Saloon were busy getting things in order for dinner, when a wan and gaunt passenger spoke to one of them. "'Where have you placed me at the table?' he asked. "'What name, sir?' asked the steward. "'Keeling.' The steward looked along the main tables, up one side and down the other, reading the cards, but nowhere did he find the name he was in search of. Then he looked at the small tables, but also without success. "'How do you spell it, sir?' he asked the patient passenger. "'K-E-E-L-I-N-G.' "'Thank you, sir.' He then looked up and down the four rows of names on the passenger list he held in his hand, but finally shook his head. "'I can't find your name on the passenger list,' he said. "'I'll speak to the purser, sir.' "'I wish you would,' replied the passenger in a listless way, as if he had not much interest in the matter. The passenger, whose name was not on the list, waited until the steward returned. "'Would you mind stepping into the purser's room for a moment, sir? I'll show you the way, sir.' When the passenger was shown into the purser's room, that official said to him, in the urbane manner of pursers, "'Might I look at your ticket, sir?' The passenger pulled a long pocketbook from the inside of his coat, opened it, and handed the purser the document it contained. The purser scrutinized it sharply, and then referred to a list he had on the desk before him. "'This is very strange,' he said at last. "'I never knew such a thing to occur before, although, of course, it is always possible. The people on shore have in some unaccountable manner left your name out of my list. I am sorry you have been put to any inconvenience, sir.' "'There have been no inconvenience so far,' said the passenger, "'and I trust there will be none.' You find the ticket regular, I presume? Quite so, quite so, replied the purser. Then, to the waiting steward, give Mr. Keeling any place he prefers at the table which is not already taken. You have room 18. That was what I bought at Liverpool. 
Well, I see you have the room to yourself, and I hope you will find it comfortable. Have you ever crossed with us before, sir? I seem to re recollect your face. I have never been in America. Ah, uh, I see so many faces, of course, that I sometimes fancy I know a man when I don't. Well, I hope you will have a pleasant voyage, sir. Thank you. Number 18 was not a popular passenger. People seemed instinctively to shrink from him, although it must be admitted that he made no advances. All went well until the Gibrontus was about halfway over. When forenoon, the chief officer entered the captain's room with a pale face, and shutting the door after him said, I am very sorry to have to report, sir, that one of the passengers has fallen into the hold. Good heavens, cried the captain. Is he hurt? He is killed, sir. The captain stared aghast at his subordinate. How did it happen? I gave the strictest orders. Those places were on no account to be left unguarded. Although the company had held to Mrs. Keeling that the captain was not to blame, their talk with that gentleman was of an entirely different tone. That is the strange part of it, sir. The hatch had not been opened this voyage, sir, and was securely bolted down. Nonsense. Nobody will believe such a story. Someone has been careless. Ask the purser to come here, please. When the purser saw the body, he recollected and came as near fainting as a purser can. They dropped Keeling overboard in the night, and the whole affair was managed so quietly that nobody suspected anything. And what is the most incredible thing in the story? The New York papers did not have a word about it. What the Liverpool office said about the matter nobody knows, but it must have stirred up something like a breeze in that strictly business locality. It is likely they pooh-poohed the whole affair, for strange to say, when the purser tried to corroborate their story with the dead man's ticket, the document was nowhere to be found. The Gibrontus started out on her next voyage from Liverpool with all her colors flying, but some of her officers had a vague feeling of unrest within them, which reminded them of the time they first sailed on the heaving seas. The purser was seated in his room, busy, as pursers always are at the beginning of a voyage, when there was a rap at the door. "'Come in!' shouted the important official, and there entered unto him a stranger who said, "'Are you the purser?' "'Yes, sir. What can I do for you?' "'I have room number eighteen. "'What?' cried the purser, with a gasp almost jumping from his chair. Then he looked at the robust man before him and sank back with a sigh of relief. It was not Keeling. I have room number 18, continued the passenger, and the arrangement I made with your people in Liverpool was that I was to have the room to myself. I do a great deal of shipping over your... Y yes, my dear sir, said the purser, after having looked rapidly over his list. You have number 18 to yourself. So I told the man who was unpacking his luggage there, but I showed me his ticket, and it was issued before mine. I can't quite understand why your people should... What kind of... A looking man is he? A thin, unhealthy, cadaverous man who doesn't look as if he would last till the voyage ends. I don't want him for a roommate. If I have to have one, I think you ought. I will, sir. I will make it all right, I suppose. If it should happen that a mistake has been made and he has the prior claim to your room, you would not mind taking number 24. It's larger and a better room. That will suit me exactly. So the purser locked his door and went down to number 18. Well, he said to its occupant. Well, answered Mr. Keeling, looking up at him with his cold and fishy eyes. You're here again, aren't you? 
I'm here again, and I will be here again and again and again and again and again. Now, what the... Then the purser hesitated a moment and thought perhaps he had better not swear. With that icy, clammy gaze fixed upon him, what object have you in all of this? Object, the very simple one of making your company live up to its contract. From Liverpool to New York, my ticket reads, I paid for being landed in the United States, not for being dumped overboard in mid-ocean. Do you think you can take me over? You have tried two times at it and have not succeeded. Yours is a big and powerful company, too. If you know we can't do it, then why do you... The purser hesitated. Pester you with my presence, suggested Mr. Keeling, because I want you to do justice. Two thousand pounds is the price, and I will raise it one hundred pounds every trip. This time, the New York papers got hold of the incident, but not of its peculiar features. They spoke of the extraordinary carelessness of the officers in allowing practically the same accident to occur twice on the same boat. When the Gibraltar reached Liverpool, all the officers, from the captain down, sent in their resignations. Most of the sailors did not take the trouble to resign, but cut for it. The managing director was annoyed at the newspaper comments, but laughed at the rest of the story. He was invited to come over and interview Keeling for his own satisfaction, most of the officers promising to remain on the ship if he did so. He took room 18 himself. What happened? I do not know, for the purser refused to sail again on the Gibraltar and was given another ship. But this much is certain. When the managing director got back, the company generously paid Mrs. Keeling £2,100. That was Robert Barr's The Man Who Was Not On The Passenger List, as read by our own Stephen Kilpatrick. Stephen Kilpatrick is the former host of Tales to Terrify. He works supporting assistive technologies for special education students and is currently working towards a role in information assurance. Thank you, Stephen. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Next up for this evening is a tale from Arecibo Campeche. Arecibo is in the final stretch for completing his Ph.D. in biochemistry and biophysics. He writes science fiction, fantasy, and horror that's often inspired by his own interpretation of scientific principles. His work has appeared in Daily Science Fiction and is forthcoming in Weird Book number 41. You can find him on Twitter at Arecibo C. Feast your ears on Arecibo Campeche's Conservation of Cold. I opened my eyes and saw my body lying face up on a yellow gurney. My left sleeve had been rolled up to the bicep. Smeared blood covered my inside elbow. I tried to stand and yell at the paramedic that I was still here, just a few feet away, prone on the kitchen floor. But the pain on my side rushed to my head and pounded against my temples. I forced air up my throat, bubbling through viscous phlegm. Before I could form words, my throat closed, and my vision became hazy. My body lay unmoving on the gurney, but I, whatever I had become, spasmed against the tiled floor. Abuela limped down the stairs out of breath, her hunched body tilted to the sides as she landed on each step. She stood over my body as tears streamed down her face, then slapped the fresh puncture wounds on my arm, yelling, ¿Por qué hiciste esto? The floor was freezing, and I didn't have enough energy to get up, to run away. Even if I did, I would still hear her screaming, blaming me for accidentally killing myself. I managed to bring my hands to my face, but soon realized she couldn't see me. The paramedic signaled Abuela to move away from the gurney, and despite her anger and desperation, she did. He placed his shaking palms between my breasts and, using his entire weight, compressed my chest then placed two fingers on my neck. His face tensed. Abuela followed the paramedic as he rushed me out the front door. Ambulance sirens wailed, disappearing down the street as I lay on the cold tiles.
It took a long time for the shock to wear off, and even longer for me to lose all hope of being revived and returning to my body, if that was even possible. I was able to sit. Pain, disbelief, stress, all present. Yet something I had when alive was missing, a force so strong that I considered it an emotion like any other. The desire to get high when things got difficult, to steady a downer with an upper, had disappeared. I had died, but I was free of my addiction. Abuela would feel better, too, when I told her that despite my death, I was still here and okay. Like some Puerto Ricans of her age group, her religion combined Catholicism, Santeria, and several forms of magic, sprinkled with her own unique beliefs. I could only imagine how concerned she was over my so-called soul. My hands didn't pass through the walls like in the movies, nor did I sink through the floor into oblivion. I was invisible, but solid. I'd be able to write a message on the wall with the paint we kept on the porch. She'd freak out, but reading a message was probably less disturbing than hearing me speak. My footsteps were silent as I walked towards the screen door leading outside, where my body had crossed through the porch and then to the ambulance. I didn't see any cars parked on the street, but soon enough the neighbors would get home from their jobs, find out I overdosed on heroin, and run over, crying to Abuela, I'm so sorry for your loss. Alicia was such a bright girl. Then they'd pat Abuela's wrinkled hands and say, I'm sure God has a reason for taking her so young. Of course, when they went back home, out of earshot from the outside world, their tongues would fall off with the weight of hot gossip. I knew something bad was going to happen to that girl doing drugs all the time. To make matters worse, she was an atheist. I don't want to say this, but I'm afraid that if she didn't embrace Jesus before departing, she's in a bad place now. Cold air blew into the house. I hugged myself and shivered. It reminded me of vacationing in Boston during winter. The temperature in Puerto Rico never dropped this low, so the cold had to be a consequence of my condition. It was a sunny day out, and after writing my message, I could take a walk to warm myself up. I pulled the screen door handle. It didn't move. I grabbed my wrist with my other hand, pulling until I trembled in place. The flimsy screen door designed to stop flies and vermin, didn't budge. I tried other doors that led to the bathroom, kitchen pantry, and backyard. None of them moved. Smaller items, like the pen I found under the sofa, were also infinitely heavy. I kicked and punched every object around me, begging for something to at least stir and acknowledge my existence— I didn't get fatigued, but eventually became bored of taking my anger out on the house and wandered aimlessly until I found myself in front of the living room mirror. Nothing. I had no reflection.
I waved my hands, but sunlight coming from the windows passed through me uninterrupted. My pale and naked body was only visible to myself. Abuela came back hours later, giving me enough time to figure out the nature of what I was. In a nutshell, I had no mass. Without mass, I couldn't exert force, explaining my inability to move things. Light didn't interact with me either, further supporting my assumption. Yet I had awareness and could interact with objects, even if it was just to be hindered by them. Dr. Miguel Suarez, the man who is shepherding me towards earning my Ph.D. in biochemistry, would be proud. Even in death, I still approached problems with a scientific mind. Unfortunately, he'd never find out. Alicia, Abuela said. Her voice cracked as she said my name. Te suicidaste con una sobredosis. Estás en el infierno. I turned and saw her standing in the threshold to the kitchen. I tried to speak and explain to her that I hadn't killed myself and that overdosing could hardly be considered suicide. Instead, I became dizzy as the words formed in my throat. I felt like pulling my hair from the frustration of not being able to communicate. I needed to tell her. My being here was what mattered. Her religion was giving her more grief than closure. Chances were hell didn't even exist. Tears ran down her wrinkled face. Her eyes focused on the living room wall, as if expecting a miracle to occur. A string of wooden beads, her rosary, was coiled around her forearm. The room grew colder still. I tried to force words out, but lost my balance and landed on my knees. No sound left my mouth. It took several seconds for me to recover. She raised her shaky arms to pray and lowered her head. I got closer. A barely noticeable substance surrounded her like an aura. Translucent yellow gas rippled from her arms. I hovered both hands over her forearm. The gas was hot. She warmed me like a campfire. I ran my hands through the colored heat, parting the waves, but also absorbing some warmth. The back of my hands prickled. Her heat diffused into my body, relaxing me. My mouth salivated. The energy was delicious. Without thinking, I grasped Abuela's wrist, squeezing as hard as I could. She screamed. Abuela's gaze locked with mine. Alicia! She flung her arm loose. I stumbled back, catching a glimpse of myself in the living room mirror before disappearing again. She looked at her wrist with wide eyes and crossed herself with her other hand, the wooden Jesus dangling from the string of beads. My body itched for more heat. Un demonio enmascarado, she said. Padre nuestro que estás en el cielo, santificado sea tu nombre. She darted up the stairs, repeating the Lord's Prayer in a loop. Abuela had lived in the States for more than a decade and was fully bilingual, but she always prayed in Spanish. 
I rushed after her, pushing the curtain at the base of the staircase. Instead of acting as a concrete wall, the stringed beads moved aside. Abuela looked back at what had to look like the beads moving from their own volition. She whimpered, cradling her wrist against her chest, and ran up the stairs. The cold gripped my legs again, and I stumbled on the steps. She prayed louder, rushing into her room, then slammed the door shut. When we connected, I wanted to hug her, tell her I loved her, to say, Everything will be all right, abuelita. But the feeling of euphoria had overwhelmed me, and speaking, at least trying to, knocked me off balance. Despite my effort, my situation had gotten worse. After seeing me, Abuela now believed I was a demon in disguise, since in her head the real me, my soul, had to be somewhere in hell being poked by some little red man with a pitchfork. None of this made sense to me, but in the end, everyone's religion was whatever they wanted it to be. I heard her door open, but still didn't climb the stairs. How could I? If I couldn't talk, there was no excuse to get close and touch her, except for how good it made me feel. And touching her also hurt her. Despite her pain, I didn't trust myself to not grab her again if I came too close. On the second floor, echoes of Abuela's weeping filled the hallway. She stomped around. The house went silent after she finished whatever she was doing, shutting her door again, and I mustered enough courage to go upstairs. The other rooms and bathrooms were open. Abuela insisted on airing the house, keeping the doors open when a room was unoccupied. She claimed the smell of stuffiness and used socks accumulated otherwise. I found my room as I had left it. Every piece of clothing, makeup, and my school backpack in their usual place, as if expecting me to come back from the dead and continue my routine. The bottom drawer in my dresser, where I kept my stash, and hid my special spoon just before the heroine kicked in and killed me, was closed, unexplored. Yet Abuela knew I had drugs here. Maybe not in that specific drawer, but somewhere. During the last few years, she'd thrown around enough innuendos about how bad habits can shape a person into something they're not. A collection of warnings to persuade me to quit, to stop coming home with bloodshot eyes and slurred speech. I ignored her, thinking my vices were under control. Drugs, especially stronger stuff, were only for special occasions, like when the stress of lab work threatened to drive me crazy, tension built in after years of 16-hour workdays, running experiments six days a week, while being unappreciated by everyone outside of science. I'd started with alcohol, like everyone else. Then marijuana, when too much booze ruined my digestion. I skipped through cocaine and, only on special occasions, landed on a needle. The whole thing felt like a repeating series of accidents, as if I was tripping on the same rock on my walk to school every day. 
but I wasn't going to use drugs forever. The plan was to quit right after graduation. I sat on my bed for hours. It never made a sound, the creaking of worn, rusty springs absent. Instead, a chill spiraled up my spine like fingers flicking air out of a syringe. The clock on my room wall read 7 p.m. Eventually, I stood to look outside my window. Black bows hung from the front door of every house, a sign of respect to the recently deceased. Two black ribbons stretched from each bow and piled into small mounds. They must have bought them in the same store, or probably one of the neighbors bought one for everyone. I wouldn't be surprised if it had been Abuela who gifted the bows, asking nicely that they be hung. All traces of Abuela's heat had left me, the pleasure gone with it. Only the anger after seeing the neighborhood hypocrisy lingered. In the past few years, I'd managed the drive home while intoxicated more than once, only to park too far from the sidewalk, open the door, and vomit on the street as tears ran down my face. On a few occasions, the neighbors called the cops. The neighbors hated me, called me a negative influence on their kids, despite the fact I never talked to any of them. And I was sure none of them were perfect either. I always urged Abuela to call the police when the loud spousal fights or drunken parties stretched late into the night, but she'd just shrug. God rewards those who turn the other cheek, she'd always say as if her patience was a down payment for going to heaven. Something caught my foot as I turned from the window. A red seven-day candle with a drawing of a saint on it stood beside my bed. In a wooden frame beside the candle, I saw a picture of me as a little girl, missing my two front teeth and wearing a proud smile. Abuela must have set this up after I touched her. I crouched down until my knees reached my head. Red, blood-thick wax pooled below the burning wick. The flame flickered in an uninterrupted random pattern. I waved the back of my hand near the fire. Te amo, Alicia. Abuela stood in the doorway. This was the second time she addressed me after my death, as if a part of her knew I was close. I brought my fingertips closer to the flame, then rested my cheek on my left knee, waiting for her to turn and leave. If she thought I was a demon, I couldn't imagine how she'd react after seeing me, spine taut against my skin, slouched in front of my own proffering. She turned, and I closed my eyes, then cupped the flame in my palm, but nothing happened. The flame felt cold as metal. I hadn't considered the possibility that only human heat affected me. The need for a satisfying high only increased after the failed attempt with the candle. Abuela shut my door before I reached her. I considered calling out to her, but the thought of speaking made me nauseous. I stood in front of the door. 
Unlike when I had a body and worked long hours standing in front of a lab bench, my legs didn't fall asleep. The stiffness in my neck never came. Still as a statue, I waited. A gnawing need to get high kept me company. The next morning, Abuela slowly turned the doorknob as a voice came from outside, stopping her before she fully opened my door. Boy! Abuela yelled. She left the door ajar. Even turning my body sideways, I wouldn't fit through. Outside my window, I saw Cynthia, one of the neighbors from across the street, walking from our mailbox with a package cradled on her side. Bringing Abuela her mail? She had to be up to something. I squinted, looking at Cynthia's house. Aluminum screens behind the window panes blocked my view. But I knew they were there. Cynthia's sisters, Amanda and Carla, what I called the gossip patrol, keeping watch. I heard Abuela swing the porch gate open. Cynthia walked into the house. Abuela had also felt something when I touched her. But in her case, surprise and pain filled her cataract-filmed eyes after I grabbed her wrist. I was dead, but not unfeeling. The fact that it had felt good to grab her only added to the guilt. If I found a way to get close to Cynthia, I could feed on her heat. Her health wasn't my concern and I wouldn't be caught by surprise now after becoming visible. With enough heat, I'd probably be visible for a while. I could smile and wave to Abuela, convincing her I wasn't an evil demon. Maybe we could even leave the house together and find others like me. Statistically, I couldn't be the only one. No one was that unique. I had to admit I was also curious. Cynthia was young, around my age. Perhaps if I touched her, my high would be different. The experience might be more intense. The difference between a few sips of beer or pounding several tequila shots in rapid succession. Or maybe a young person's heat changed the high altogether, and I'd trampoline from the drowsiness caused by Xanax to the jaw-twisting strength of cocaine. I grabbed the doorknob, then pulled with both hands. Nothing happened. A way for me to move objects had to exist, because I'd been able to move the curtain earlier. I concentrated, willing strength to accumulate in my fingers. A paralyzing cold spread from my toes, feet, and up my legs, as if I was slowly dipping myself into an icy lake. White vapor rose from the doorknob as I squeezed it. I pulled. The door started to open, moving towards me at a snail's pace. I leaned back. The door swung towards me and I fell backwards. After sitting up, I realized my knees were locked in position. I tried to stand, but my legs didn't move. I cupped my right knee with both hands to force the joint to bend, but my palms sizzled with a freezing burn. What I was became clear. 
words like ghosts, spirit, angel, and demon were useless blanket statements so generalizable and loaded with preconceptions that the terms themselves lost meaning. A rigorous definition was more useful. I had died and become a carno engine of sorts, an instrument that transformed heat into mechanical energy. The heat I extracted from living people also made me visible. I smiled thinking of my research on fluorescent molecules. The shiny dots became brighter as the temperature of their environment increased. Not even the dead escaped the laws of thermodynamics. Still grinning, I flipped onto my stomach, then dragged myself out of the room like a slithering snake. Hola, Doña Amelia, Cynthia said, her voice echoing up the stairs. Gracias por venir, Abuela said. Claro, Cynthia giggled. What was so good about Cynthia coming over? I told Abuela a thousand times not to trust the neighbors, but every time I gave her a reason, she'd just say that talking about people who gossip counted as gossip. She claimed a better approach was to be the best person you can be and give nothing interesting to talk about. Then she'd give me that look that said she knew I gave too much to talk about. I slapped the floor with my clammy hands, pulling myself towards the stairs. My paralyzed legs dragged like the tall gas cylinders in my lab. If Cynthia came upstairs, I'd grab her ankles and absorb all the heat I could. I needed to warm up my legs in addition to a nice buzz. The mop and broom are in the pantry, Abuela said in Spanish. Cynthia had come to clean the house. I paused. Maybe I was being too harsh and overconfident in my judgment. It was hard to imagine Cynthia volunteered for housework just to find things to create a scandal over. I lugged back to my room. When I was alive, cleaning was my responsibility. Looking for patches of dust that I'd missed like a crime scene investigator, was Abuela's favorite hobby. She hadn't given me cooking, yard work, or any other chores. I didn't even pay rent. She told me to focus on school, saying she was proud I'd be the first doctor in the family. Unlike the rest of my family and friends, she never cracked a joke about a Ph.D. in biochemistry not being a real doctor. At times, her belief in me was the only force keeping me in pursuit of my career. And now, I'd never graduate. Never make the only person who really cared proud. I was only missing one experiment to have enough data for a publication, immortalizing my name among the scientific community. My work was wasted. Or worse, another person in the lab would finish it, and push me down the author list, maybe even take my name off completely, since I didn't need publications to advance my career anymore. Back in my room, my kindergarten self smiled back at me from the framed picture. Most worries I had when alive had disappeared. 
things that kept me up at night, like the search for jobs after graduation, how I'd struggled to kick my drug habit when the time came, were unimportant. The question of how long it would take to save enough money to rent my own place seemed absurd now. Yet I still couldn't imagine being as happy as I looked in the picture. So much had been left undone. The child's happiness stemmed from ignorance and not a sense of professional or personal accomplishments. Cynthia grunted. She stood outside my room, barefoot on the tiled floor, using both hands to carry a large bucket with a mop inside. Water splashed on the floor when she set it down. Abuela hadn't entered my room after leaving the candle and my picture. She hadn't cleaned any part of the house, either. In fact, I couldn't remember the last time I saw her eat. Her body had abruptly become frailer since I died. The hunch on her back curving a few degrees in less than two days. I didn't need to like Cynthia to recognize the favor she was doing Abuela. I crawled under my bed to avoid bumping into the mop or broom, starting to accept my condition as permanent and unfixable. Cynthia sat on my bed with a creaking sound. Her ankles released a faint blue vapor. I leaned my head in, the energy caressing my cheeks. The hairs behind my neck stood as I inhaled silky ribbons of blue, gaseous heat. A prickling sensation ran down my legs. Cynthia giggled and shuffled her feet. For a second, I thought she felt me close. But instead of looking under the bed, she stood and walked toward the window. She laughed louder, then mumbled something about a ridiculous old lady. I pulled my upper body from under the bed and saw her standing, hips tilted, pointing her phone at the candle and my portrait, snapping pictures. She knocked on the metal window panes, calling out to her sisters, who no doubt came running to their own windows like drooling dogs. I started to tremble, biting on the inside of my lips. She lifted the phone to the window, as if her idiot sisters had long-range vision, telling them how much they were going to laugh when they saw the picture she was taking. Did she not even care that Abuela might be within earshot? She turned to leave, still sliding her finger on the phone, probably looking at the picture through different filters, or adding sparkles around the candle increasing the juiciness of her find. I slammed my fists against the floor. How could she be so disrespectful? Cynthia skipped from the window, still laughing. It was clear she had no intention to clean. I lunged, grabbing both of her ankles. She squealed, then dropped her phone. Pleasure rippled through me. Every cell in my body excited simultaneously, the first time high of every drug I'd used when alive, mixed with the gut-clenching spasms of an orgasm. Cynthia screamed. I turned my head, stared straight into her eyes, and bit her calf, sinking my teeth deep into muscle. 
Her heat flowed down my throat, a sweet and warm liquid that filled me with bliss. She screamed senseless dribble. Thick strands of saliva flew from her mouth. Her arms swung wildly over her head as if wanting to defend her, but not knowing how. Ceramic boxes on top of my dresser shattered against the floor, spilling jewelry everywhere. I held for a long time, but the high only got better, not limited by the bioelectrical saturation limit of a nervous system. I whispered her name, Cynthia. Dark blotches formed at the edge of my vision. My strength seeped away, and Cynthia freed one of her legs, then the other. I heard her name from far away. Her sisters must have heard the racket and were calling to her. I reached out trying to grab the cell phone and text Abuela while the tingling heat ran through my body, but everything went black. It was nighttime when I woke up. Cynthia must have rushed back to her house and hopefully would spend the next few years crying herself to sleep in terror, visiting psychologists until she convinced herself that what she'd seen wasn't real. Perhaps there were some residual drugs lying around my room, and she'd hallucinated after inhaling them. Maybe the stress from a neighbor dying had made her brain fabricate illusions. Whatever lie eventually comforted her, the bite marks guaranteed it would take a while for normalcy to set in. My legs worked again, so I walked around the second floor of the house. Abuela was in her room, reading her Bible while she lay on the bed. I couldn't tell if her hands were shaking from old age or because of the aftermath of what I had done. The ten o'clock news blared on the TV that sat on a table across from her. On days that I came home drunk or high, which lately had become every day, she cranked the TV volume even higher giving me a small hint that I had done something wrong and didn't deserve to sleep in peace. Seeing her there made my eyes water. How was I supposed to deal with the loneliness of death? The despair in my heart climbed my throat and quivered in my lips. She was so close, but unreachable, untouchable. I had taken so much for granted when I was alive— thinking that she would always be there, that I'd have the rest of my life to discover and share new scientific phenomena, that dying of a drug overdose was something that happened to people who weren't careful and not to scientists in training who measured micrograms daily. I'd also managed to be irresponsible with my high during death. Knowing that talking somehow ruined my vision and balance hadn't stopped me from whispering to scare Cynthia. The lesson of self-control was lost on me. Now I was dead, and the high was gone. Only the guilt of the recently sobered who realized they had fallen off the wagon remained. I was trapped in a house where the only way to get around was to suck heat off a living person. 
instead of a sophisticated machine, an efficient engine, I had become a parasite, feeding off living things for pleasure. I existed in a vacuum with no purpose, no ecosystem. Abuela had been right. Everyone had stress, and sometimes the difference between swimming in an endless ocean of anxiety or drowning in a glass of water was the perspective we took. What I missed about life now was exactly that stress, the uncertainty, the challenge to be a successful scientist, a better person. I stood in Abuela's doorway and resented her. She could have been more aggressive. If I didn't want to see, she should have pried my eyes open, even organized an intervention. She could have been more direct. I shook my head. It was time I took responsibility for my actions. Blaming my problems on anything except myself, dealing with them immaturely, such as numbing my mind with drugs, had already killed me. Abuela had been right in other ways as well. We only had the power to change ourselves. What had I gained by hurting Cynthia? Abuela would only be ostracized by the community. Whispers of her being a witch, the house being haunted, running up and down the gossip wire. Tears ran down my face, taking the last of my heat with them. The cold filled me completely. I sat at the foot of the bed, careful to be far enough from Abuela so she wouldn't stretch and accidentally touch me. We watched the weather until a coughing fit made her sit up. She covered her mouth with her white gown. Fresh blood stood out, stark against the whiteness of the cloth. The urge to touch her clawed up my stomach, then concentrated in my temples. I resisted. Addiction had beat me in life and followed me into death, but I wouldn't succumb a second time. Abuela coughed again, and it occurred to me, she might join me soon. This time I'd follow every piece of advice to the letter. She had always been curious about what I did at school. There would be enough time for me to teach her science. And together, grandmother and granddaughter, we'd explore this new phase of existence. As if by design, Abuela died that night. I first noticed that her chest had stopped rising and falling. Then I grazed my fingers over her cheeks. Touching her was the same as any other object in the house, lifeless. Her heat was gone. The beaded curtain at the bottom of the stairs jingled. She must have learned how to use her heat already. Impressive. Or maybe people that died at different ages became a different kind of ghost. I couldn't wait to learn about it. I stood from the bed, thinking as fast as I could. How could I communicate with Abuela? I needed to be as loving as possible and not demon-like. Abuela stood naked at the top of the stairs. Loose skin hung from her body. She looked the same as when alive, but I knew she felt no pain. 
I smiled, then waved at her like a parent waves at a child. Her jaw hung open, her eyes full of recognition. She gagged, making a wet sound deep in her throat. I moved a bit closer with my index finger on my lips. Donde? Demonio, she said slowly, like someone struggling to speak through a heart attack. She fell on her knees. I kneeled in front of her. She whispered, Paraíso. The wrinkles on her face squeezed together. Mi paraíso. Her eyes locked with mine. She pointed towards the ceiling. Now I understood. She had died and not gone to heaven. Instead, she thought she'd joined a shape-shifting demon. Still kneeling, she clenched her fists and punched her thighs as if punishing her unresponsive legs. I tried to catch her attention by waving my hands. I looked into her eyes. Instead of my abuela staring back, I only saw rage. I tried to stand, but she lunged at me, pushing me by the neck until I fell on my back. She yelled, Tu culpa! Abuela sat on my stomach and slammed my head against the floor repeatedly until I heard my skull crack. I felt no pain, but she was draining my energy. I tried to suck some heat back, but I was too weak. She had too much of an advantage. Her tongue ran over her lips like someone remembering how delicious food was. I tried to wiggle from under her, anything to resist the efflux of heat from my body. Abuela moved her hands from my neck to my face, threatening to squeeze out the last of my heat. I looked at her, begging her to stop, but the patience she had in life was extinguished. She buried her thumbs into my eyes. Vitreous liquid mixed with tears ran down the side of my head. She slammed my head against the floor again. When the last drops of my heat diffused into her, I plummeted through the floor like a traitor cast from paradise. I have yet to find escape from this place. I walked in the cold until I found the wall. As far as I can tell, it stretches to infinity on either side. A sense of satisfaction is the first thing I'd feel if you told me you were able to read this writing. I had to rest my wrist on my forehead to try and keep the sentences level. I still can't see, and don't know if my blood sticks to the wall or just runs off. I'm not even sure if the wall is white or another color light enough to serve as a good medium for writing on. At least my blood seems to never run out. It took me a long time to think of biting my thumb open and using the blood to write, no, to publish my story. Unfortunately, this never occurred to me while in Abuela's house. Please, if you find this, call out to me. I'll call back. I can speak now, scream even, but no one hears. I don't want to be in this hell by myself. 
I can't tell if the roomy running down my face is from weeping or something else. I am so cold, but I won't touch you. I've learned my lesson. I promise. I need to find a way out of this place and tell Abuela that I love her. I don't blame her for what happened. In a way, I was part demon in life already. She'd spent her life knowing that suffering and pain were rewarded with an unimaginably happy afterlife. But after dying, she hadn't entered through golden gates into a garden of infinite bliss. She only saw me. She had no reason to behave like a good Christian anymore. If you are reading this, Abuela, I'm sorry. This is not heaven. But I've confirmed there is a place that can be called hell, opening the possibility that an opposite realm exists. If we meet here, let's pray together. I hope I can make you proud. Alicia M. Lopez Ph.D. Candidate in Biochemistry, Draft Number 177 of A 25-Year-Old Woman Experiences Life After Death, A Case Study. That was Arecibo Campeche's Conservation of Cold, as read by Maureen McLean. Maureen is an Austin musician, plucking the bass with acoustic bands, the therapy sisters, and a proper cup of coffee. She earns her keep in the courtroom, interpreting real-life terrifying tales from Spanish to English. Thank you, Maureen. Well, children of the night, the hour is late and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. Our podcast was produced by editors Scott Silk and Seth Williams, website design by Josh Lightsey, and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. I look forward to seeing you again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.